0: All right, so we're in Genesis chapter 2 today. Looking at the best part of creation from God's point of view. The big questions of life. Mankind wants to know. We, we, We want to know who we are or what we are, why we're here and where we're going. Unfortunately, it's impossible for us to answer those questions apart from biblical revelation that God's given us in the Bible. And the reason is because we see parts of the answer but we don't see we don't see the whole thing like God does. We're only seeing parts. So we're constantly distorting the picture when you're only looking at little parts. For example, let me give you some people's opinions here. There was a zoologist by the name of Desmond Morris, who who said that man is essentially an animal. Karl Marx said that the essence of man is in his labor. In other words, it's in what he does. Existentialists tell us that man is essentially volitional. In other words, uh, your uniqueness is found in your will. Hugh Hefner tells us that we're sensuous creatures. And therefore, we're to be understood largely in terms of our passions or our sexual performance. And then there's a common idea today that I've read about that says a man is essentially a machine. You're just like a big computer, a powerful computer. And so scientists have been asking whether there is any essential difference between a human being in a computer, in fact, there's been studies done on this. If you're interested, you can find them on the internet. But each, what's the problem with all those worldly views? Each of them is is attempting to define man as ele, as elements of truth, and, and there is elements of truth sometimes. Uh, but the final analysis fails here because it's reductionistic, if you will. It's 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 seeing part of the picture but it lacks a comprehensive view of the whole. It can't see things the way God does. So consequently, in this age, as in previous ages of human history, man is his own most vexing problem, as Reinhold Niebuhr, Niebuhr sorry, told us. So what are we to do? What are we to do? If we're our most vexing problem, what are we to do? Well, the only wise course, is for us to ask who we are as God knows us to be, and as God sees us, and as God made us. And when we do that, we're going to find that there is no better statement, probably, in in anywhere in the world than right here in Genesis 2, verse 7. You want to know who you are? Read Genesis 2, verse 7. Very helpful verse. Here's what it says. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We'll look at that in in a moment, but let me just back up because I've skipped kind of a few verses here that talk about uh, kind of summarizing what's happened in the days of creation, in the six days of creation. So look back up to verse 4. It says that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And the midst was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So that's what it was before man. And then verse 7 tells us what God did. On day 6, God gave us the best part of His creation. It says that the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Verse 8 goes on and says that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, there, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die stop there for today so there's three main points we're going to learn today from this text we're going to see man's nature we're going to learn about man's environment man's responsibility from this text so first of all verse 7 we see man's nature very important verse we find out who who is it that created man. Number one, we see that man was created by Yahweh Elohim. Now, I'm using the Hebrew there; it's a little hard to understand in English when you see the words all capital letters, Lord, and then the word God. Now, in in Hebrew, that is Yahweh Elohim. It's interesting up to this point in the story, Moses has used only one designation for God. He's used that, that Hebrew name Elohim. Now why is that? That's an important word for God. Elohim is the, is an appropriate word in chapter 1 for the, the majestic portrayal of God as the great creator of the universe. It signifies an omnipotent deity, an, an all-powerful God. But now we come to chapter 2, verse 4, God changes His name here to His personal name. The name for God switches here, combining Elohim with His personal name Yahweh, or Lord God in most translations have it. So what's the point? Yahweh Elohim is the the dominant name that starts here and goes all the way into chapter 4. And the reason for this is that Yahweh is, again, it's His personal covenant name making this this, this covenant with, with people here. Significantly, the only place from chapter 2 into chapter 4 where Yahweh Elohim is not used is in chapter 3, verses 2 to 5, where there's this discussion going on between Satan and Eve. and And, uh, and the serpent and Eve are consciously avoiding the personal name of God as we see... Eve is being lured into sin. Isn't that interesting? They refuse to use Yahweh Elohim. And I was asking myself, why is that? And I I found one commentator by the name of Gordon Wenham. He says this quote, The God they're talking about is malevolent, secretive, and concerned to restrict man. His character is so different from that of Yahweh Elohim that the narrative Pointedly avoids the name in the dialogue. In other words, they're not even talking about Yahweh Elohim. (laughs) Satan certainly isn't. Trying to make God to not even be good. But it's beautiful, beautiful. Yahweh Elohim combines the creator here, that word Elohim, with Yahweh, the idea that he is this covenant redeemer. And so both those aspects are joined together into one name. In the immediate context here of the Sabbath, in those previous verses of chapter 2, which, by the way, the Sabbath for Israel became a day where they celebrated God as Creator and Redeemer. But now the name Yahweh Elohim here, or Lord God in your Bible, is proclaiming both of those realities. He is the Creator and the Covenant. Redeemer. So it's a significant name that God is is bringing out here. It's telling us something about Him. He is the Creator, yes, but He's also the one who's going to redeem. He's going to keep His covenant with His people. We see man's nature here in verse seven, and as well as that, God says He formed man. Man was formed. That makes Him different from the animals. Remember how God did everything else in His creation? What did He do? He spoke it into being. He spoke it into existence. But notice verse 7 says, No, God formed man. In other words, the point is, you are carefully designed by the master potter. That word formed in your Bible there indicates the act of creation was done by a careful design a very careful design. It conveys divine intentionality in what God was doing. I know God doesn't have hands. He is spirit. But in this case, it's like God is the master potter here who is perfectly working out his design, making people exactly the way he wanted them to be. And so one of the things we see here is that Man is not an afterthought. He's not just throwing us together here. It's very intentional in God's mind as He is forming and making man. That is one of the things that makes us different from animals. There's a lot of things different. We see even in verse 7 here. But you are not an animal. You have been perfectly intentionally formed, designed by Yahweh Elohim. Number three, we see that man was... Formed, but what was he made of? Well, God says, You are made from the dust. In other words, you are earthly. You are earthly. And so there's this close connection here between man and the ground from which you came. The Hebrew word for man there in verse 7 is Adam, which we get our English word Adam. Adam is the Hebrew Adam. It's interesting uh, that, that mankind here is called Adam, or Adam, and the ground has one little wor- letter added to it. The ground is Adama. So there's connection between Adam and the ground here, if you will. And so a bit, it's interesting, I did a little study, and learning from some others here. I was thinking about, okay, verse 7 says, that God formed the man of the dust from the ground. Why do you do that? It's interesting. You do a biblical study on the word dust. You go to a, go to a Bible lexicon, look at all the references and what the Bible says about dust. Very interesting study I did this week. It was very helpful thinking about this here, because dust is one of the most fascinating images of scripture, believe it or not. (laughs) You might think I'm weird, but hang with me here. It's a symbol of that which is of little worth. We don't give a whole lot of thought to dust. For most of us, it's just something we—it's obnoxious in our house, and we have to, we have to dust off the dust, you know, get rid of the dust. We don't think a whole lot about it. We just don't like it. It's something of low and humble origin. We have to watch out for extreme views here, because there are some people who would say that dust is evil. Other people will say, well, dust is nothing. Those are the extremes. No. Dust is not evil. Dust is just a neutral thing. It's part of, remember, all this very good creation that God had made. And certainly dust isn't nothing if God uses it to make us. And so both those views are wrong. And I like what the pastor commentator Matthew Henry said. I think he got it right. He says this, that dust is next to nothing. Man was not made of gold dust, powder of pearl, or diamond dust. But common dust, dust of the ground, end quote you see how other people use it in the Bible it might shed some light on it here for you. Job in the book of Job used the word twenty two times to speak of the littleness of man in his misery as as job was going through his suffering and For example, the the suffering saint Job declares this, he says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And in describing man as being formed from the dust, I want you to notice how Moses is using uh, this word. He's stressing man's humble origin and showing that that we can aspire to glory only by the grace of God. You are from dust. It shows our lowly origins. But one of the other things we see as you study the word dust in Scripture is that it is symbolized in death. Or dust symbolizes death. For example, look at chapter 3, verse 19. As part of the curse, Genesis 3.19, here's what God said to man. He says, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, into dust you will return. Job said it this way. He says, I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. That's in Job chapter 7. So here's the imagery, my friends. The image is speaking of this increasing despair, if you will, going from our littleness, our humble origins, to death. That's not everything the Bible says on the word dust. It's at least certainly not for believers. Uh, Although you and I are formed from the dust, we need to remember that when God made us from the dust, here's what He says in Psalm 103. He says, He remembers that we are dust. Yes. After all, He made you from the dust. Do you think God's going to forget that you are from the dust? No, of course not. That's the point. He formed us from the dust, and He remembers we are dust. And Psalm 103 goes on to say this, "...as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone." But I love what Psalm 103 goes on to say. It doesn't leave it there. It says, From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him, and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. My friends, God remembers that He formed you from the dust. And at the same time, He loves you. His everlasting love will not change. And so, when we remember that our bodies will go into the grave and they will return to the dust, we know the Bible reminds us in places like 1 Corinthians 15 that ultimately, for believers, the body will be made new. You will be made incorruptible. You will be given a perfect body yet again. Just like our Lord's body was renewed, made perfect, and glorified. And so it's not the end. It's not the end. You'll live forever in a glorified body as a believer. So that's important to to understand that God formed us from the dust. We also see in verse 7 that man became a living creature. You are a living creature, it says. How did God do that? It says, after he forms us from the dust, he breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. That's who you are, my friends. So God breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. and there, The idea is here, there's intimacy here. As one commentator said this, quote, breathe is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. And so, there's a personal intimacy here here as God puts, he doesn't have a mouth, but just picture him putting his mouth like doing a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation of someone who is not alive God is able to bring this individual to life by breathing into the nostrils. It's the same imagery that God uses in Ezekiel 37 where there's this valley of dry bones, just a bunch of bones lying in a valley. Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones is reconstructed here in Ezekiel 37 where God takes all these slain individuals who are just now a bunch of bones, And He brings them to life by breathing through the Spirit into them. And here's what part of the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones says. Ezekiel 37, verse 9. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as He commanded me, the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet as an exceeding great army. <laughs> That's a miracle. A miracle that God is able to do and what God did. So here the metaphor of shared breath corresponds between Adam and his maker in the same idea we saw in chapter 1, verse 27. It's this imagery here, or the language, you will, of We are made in God's image. God breathed into man. So the man of dust is now this image of God. And only he of all creation can hear now the word of God. And under God he is to have dominion. He is to rule God's creation. He's God's representative. Like the animals. Same kind of word used about the animals. He is a living creature. You are a living creature. Same term that's used to describe the living creatures in chapter 1, verse 20 and 24. And so, mankind is of similar makeup here. You draw breath into your lungs. You have life the same way, but God is doing something different here than He did to the animals. God breathed life into man, making him different from the animals. And so as a a result, an animal is not immortal, but man is immortal. You also have immense capacities because God has made you a living creature. Uh, You you are responsible. You have great potential for glory, but with that, as we're going to see in chapter 3, there's also room for great disaster. So that's man's nature. Let's take a look at man's environment in verses 8-14. through We see, first of all, in verse 8 that Yahweh, Elohim, planted a garden. He planted a garden. God is a gardener, if you will. Now, please note here that Eden is described here as a real place. (laughs) Uh, There are people who like to kind of fantasize these things and say they never did exist. So it is a real place, but at the same time, it's an idyllic idyllic place, perfectly suited here to the man in his unfallen state. And so just as Genesis 2-7 describes man's nature, portrays man's nature as perfect, so does Genesis 2 describe man's environment. Before the fall here, may I remind you, before the fall, it's portraying it as perfect. Man's perfect. His environment is perfect. These two things go together, and, and when you need to understand this, because when we get to chapter 3, it just makes the fall all the more dreadful. Man cannot claim some excuse for his fall here. That's one of the points I want to make. All right? Man cannot make excuses for the fall. All right? There's nothing wrong with his environment. His nature was perfect. His environment was perfect. I say that because there's plenty of people who make excuses and say well you know I was born in this family or my father's this way my mother's this way or you know <clears throat> you know whatever you know we make excuses my my ethnicity is this or I come from this stock or whatever right you you can't make excuses God makes them perfect puts them in a perfect environment and they sin anyway all right so that's it's not an excuse So when he sinned, it's not because of some deficiency either of their nature or their environment for which God might be held responsible. So, God plants them in this perfect environment. He's made their nature perfect. We see, second of all here, that the location for the garden is Eden. Notice God says it's in the east. Verse 8. It's in the east. And so it's in Eden. There's some area that God has described as Eden, and within that area of Eden, there's a garden. And it's from Moses' perspective. Remember, God used Moses to write this. So, from his perspective, or from Mount Sinai, which is uh, in the Arabian Desert there, or in Midian, it's to the east. And So, I've given you a map here on the screen coming from the ESV Study Bible. Given the two, two possible places for the Garden of Eden. You see those little ovals there where the Garden of Eden may have been. Most likely, spot is somewhere in Mesopotamia, the area where, where Abraham came from, uh, which is, by the way, in modern day Iraq. But the other area that some people think the Garden of Eden may have been is in modern day Turkey. It doesn't really matter. Uh, You can argue about something like this if you want, but it is a non-essential, Okay, Where was the Garden of Eden? We don't know exactly, Okay, God destroyed it in the flood. Uh, Even the rivers that are mentioned here most likely moved during the flood. Uh, So you can't even say the rivers were in the same spot. So that's a little misleading. But generally speaking, Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, which are still in existence today, give us an idea of where the Garden of Eden was. Third, we see that Yahweh provided for man. How did he do this? Well, he gave man a beautiful garden, a perfect environment, everything he needed. Here's some of the things that God says about his garden. For example, he says the garden was beautiful. Look at verse 9. It says, out of the garden, or out of the ground, Yahweh Elohim made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. So even the trees, he says, were beautiful to look at. He made all those trees pleasant to the sight, or some of your Bibles might say pleasing to the eyes. Do you think God cares about beauty? Yeah, he does. He mentions it. God intended that the environment of man would be a a thing of great beauty, and he made it that way. And and in many areas of the the beauty of man's God-given environment is still evident. Even in this fallen state, God's creation is still beautiful, isn't it? But on the other hand, we can hardly read this, I can hardly read this without weeping, because of the many distorted environments that men have... Made for themselves. We, not you, but we as mankind have messed up the environment in so many ways. God made a garden. And what do we do with it? We litter it. We litter. We litter the garden. And in our cities, we, fortunately, it's not so much the case in Hamilton, but sometimes we even eliminate the gardens in cities. So there isn't even green spaces anymore, sad to say. And so in the place of of God's beauty, we've replaced it with junk and rubbish. And sometimes it gets devastated. It shows us the devastation of sin. It shows us how terrible sin is, how far we have fallen. But we also see, number two, the garden was useful. Verse 9, not only is it pleasant to the sight, but it is good for food, verse 9 says that the, these trees that God had made, not only were they beautiful to look at, but they're actually useful and good for eating. So what did that include? Maybe may have even included leaves. Yes, you can eat some leaves, and certainly you can eat the fruit and so forth that comes on the trees. We also see the garden was healthful. God provided water for His people here, so they... God obviously knew they needed water, and there's a river flowing, probably coming out from under the ground somewhere in the garden, and eventually spreading out into four different rivers. And then God puts a little detail in, and and he shows that the garden was also resourceful. It was resourceful. He mentions there's gold, and the the gold is good, and he mentions uh, bdellium and onyx stone and there's resources there that that uh, we can use even in the perfect environment of a garden in eden so those are just some of the things that how god describes this garden we also see god puts a couple trees there in the midst of the garden i'll talk about them in a moment uh, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge god uh, put right there in the garden so so besides all these trees there there are two two specific trees highlighted there in verse 9. I'll mention them more in a moment. But let's move on and talk about man's responsibility. Man's responsibility. I want to park here and show us here, particularly on this Father's Day, what it means to be a man in particular. You see, first of all, that man was created to work and keep. Man was created to work and keep. Remember, this is Adam, mankind. So this refers to you ladies as well. But in verse 15, we see both aspects here, that Yahweh Elohim took Adam, man, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, what does that mean? Let me tell you what it means to work and keep. First of all, work is to labor to make things grow. Uh, some of the synonyms or ideas here, it's, it's nurturing, cultivating, tending, building up, guiding and ruling. I want you to notice here the word work is not a result. Work, in other words, is not a result of the fall. Okay, This is Genesis 2. The fall doesn't happen until Genesis 3. So for those of you who have the perspective of thank God it's Friday or dreading Monday, notice work is a blessing of God given to perfect man in a perfect environment. Work is not the problem. Sin is the problem. (laughs) Okay? So God gave work while everything's perfect. And and by the way, because the context here is the garden, let's consider how work applies in an agricultural sense for a moment before we get into other areas. What do we see here? Man's called by God to till and cultivate the garden so that it would grow. Why? It would bear fruit. Man was called by God to to do this kind of work. Now, what does a gardener do To make his garden grow. Well, I'm not an expert on this, but the idea is here he's tending the garden. God wanted Adam and Eve to tend the garden. You do that by maybe digging the soil once in a while. You might fertilize, you can plant some seeds, you might require some pruning of branches. His labor is making those things stronger, more beautiful making it lush, that's work. And then, if you're like me as a gardener, I don't particularly enjoy gardening, but when I do some gardening, I like to kind of do that work and kind of step back and look at it and admire it and say, wow, that's cool. This is what God's called me to do. (laughs) You can admire your work. Now, obviously, most of us are not going to make a living being a gardener, most of us. We're called to work whatever field that God has given to us, whatever that is. We all have different fields. We might be called to be a planter, a builder, a grower. Your working life is spent accomplishing things. Uh, We're we're investing our time and our energies and our ideas, our passions in bringing good things into being. That's what a gardener's doing. Someone who works, that's what they're doing. So a faithful steward is then devoted to cultivating, to building, to planting and growing. You say, well, in what areas are we working?' Well, just look around yourselves here. Even in our own congregation, we have different kinds of workers, right? We have painters, managers, farmers, homemakers, secretaries, hospital employees. We have equine therapists. Right? These are just some of the things that you're doing. Right? These are this is kind of work, you know, and and those are different fields of work. And in all those fields of work, you you can accomplish good. This is what God expects you to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with earning a wage. Okay? It's not a sin to earn a wage. So, uh, so if you work to earn money, that's not sinful. But hopefully, if you're a Christian, you should, you should want your labors to yield more than just earning money for, for yourself. Okay? Uh, in other words, Christians should also desire to cultivate something worthwhile for the glory of God, not merely just for yourself. Hopefully, it's also, hey, I can help the well-being of humanity through my work, through what you create and what you do. Hopefully you're, you're saying, I can love people through my work. Through your, through what you sell, what you make, uh, you know, what you're doing, right? Now of course our garden includes not merely things, but I hope you understand your garden includes people. You get that? Your garden includes people. Your work includes people. Our cult, our calling to cultivate means we're to be involved in the hearts of people. And that's the people, by the way, that you, you work with. It includes the people you teach, you mentor. It includes your spouse, your children, your workmates, your friends. The people you come in contact, in contact with are part of your working environment, if you will. So any relationship becomes an opportunity for you to apply the work mandate. Now on this Father's Day, I'm reminded that children are part of the soil that I'm to be working. Hearts of children are part of the soil that need to be cultivated, need to be nurtured so that they can be planted there and, and grow and bear much fruit for God's glory. But all of us have human relationships. You need to be working in those human relationships, nurturing, planting, tilling fertilizing, pruning even maybe so that they can bear much fruit for God's glory but notice God doesn't just say you are to work notice he says he uses the word keep here as well to keep means to protect it means uh, sustaining the progress that's already been achieved through the work keeping it going if you will see it's not enough to just work he wants you to keep it going the idea is here you're guarding, keeping safe, watching over, caring for, and maintaining. We're to watch over, keep safe, all that God has put under our care. So again, what does that mean? It, it means you're to stand guard so that people and things are kept safe. So that the fruit of the past, all that work that you did, that cultivating and nurturing, it needs to be Preserved. We're called to keep others safe within all of our relationships. In other words, my friends, you're responsible to people, to God. For example, we need to care for our families so that the soil of their hearts can grow and they would bear much fruit for God. In the church, we are to stand for truth and godliness against attacks. Stand. The idea is there, you're you're watching over, keeping safe, you're... You're guarding what's hopefully been started. In society, we're to stand up against evil. you understand? That's all part of keeping, my friends. You're all responsible to do that. And so the end result is we're to devote ourselves to working and keeping everything that God places into our care. After all, what are we? God says we're stewards of His stuff. So you're responsible to work and keep. Number two, man was created to obey. Not only were you created to work and keep, God says you were created to obey. After all, He made you. He carefully designed you. And so that's what He's talking about here in verses 16 and 17. Notice, he, notice how verse 16 starts. Because it says that Yahweh Elohim commanded the man. He talks about these two trees that He put there in the midst of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And they're put there as a test. One tree they're allowed to eat, one they're not. God specifically commands and He gives them instruction here. By the way, interesting, He starts off with the positive instruction, which, by the way, is far more generous than the negative. But the instruction is given as a positive expression of God's goodness Rather than talking about harsh restrictions, which Satan wants to talk about in chapter 3, the Hebrew phrase there in your Bible in verse 16 says, from every tree of the garden, that's evidence for God's extensive provision. Every tree they may eat, God says, isn't God gracious and generous and good? And this generosity, by the way, is heightened here by the following Hebrew construction here where where it's translated, you may surely eat. The idea is it could be translated, you may eat freely of all of these trees. It's a very strong affirmation here indicating the provision of God for that first couple here is, is plentiful and it is to be enjoyed freely by them. You need to know this, my friends, because when we come to Satan's temptation... In chapter three, Satan's gonna bring into question God's goodness. He's gonna start pointing out uh, some things that aren't true, bringing into question God's goodness. God is very good. But we also need to understand freedom has no meaning without prohibition. Is there really freedom if there isn't, if there isn't at least one thing you're not supposed to do? So the boundary for Adam here is one tree. He can eat of everything except one tree. God states his command very, very strongly in Hebrew. In fact, look what one commentator said about this command. Quote, The command is emphatic in a variety of ways. First, the two constructions, you may eat freely and you will certainly die, are infinitive absolutes, that's in the Hebrew, occurring in the form of a word play with Finite verbs. In other words, they literally read, Eating, you may eat, and dying, you will die. This is a Hebrew method of intensification, and a notion of certainty is reinforced. Quote. I'm not a Hebrew expert, but in my own words, it's this, my friends. God is stating it as emphatically and strongly as He can when He repeats these ideas. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. So what would happen if Adam disobeyed God? God says in verse 17 that man's consequence for disobedience is death. Death. Look at verse 17. Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So in once in what sense here's the question that people have asked for centuries in what sense will mankind die in the day that they eat of that tree now the problem is as you you probably know that when humanity does disobey god in chapter 3 no physical de- death occurred on that specific day right adam and eve didn't die that day in fact we know adam goes on to live what something like, what, 930 years, right? Obviously didn't die that day, so to answer the question, we need to understand there's three kinds of death. Three kinds of death. Do you know these three kinds of death? Right. There is spiritual death, physical death. The Bible describes an eternal death in the lake of fire. All right. So the basic idea of death is it's a separation. So, what 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 is this one talking about here? When God says, they will surely die, which one is he talking about? Well, let me ask you this. Could it be more than one? Could it be two? Could it be all three of them? I think it's actually referring to all three. At least two, anyway. Let me explain myself. Well, spiritual death occurred the moment Adam sinned. How do we know that? Well, we see it in chapter 3, right? There's this... Separation, the spiritual death separation between Adam and God. Because as soon as Adam sins, he, he's like, whoa, I'm naked. Oh no, God's gonna come. I need to hide, right? So here he had this perfect fellowship with God. He's not concerned about being naked. But right after he eats and does exactly what God told him not to do, he's, he's, he's recognizing things. He, is now, he now has this evil heart. The spiritual death is happening, so he's hiding from God when God comes into the garden. He's trying to clothe himself. They didn't die at that moment, but there's, we also need to understand that even though there's a spiritual death that occurred at that moment, instantly they're separated from God in fellowship. And so while spiritual death is certainly one of the results of mankind's fall into sin, The physical aspect shouldn't be overlooked. The fact is, in the day they ate, death took over the human body. Think of it this way. I'll try to uh, describe it this way. Uh, Let's take. uh, Let's say you you prune a branch from a tree. Did you know the branch actually continues the photosynthesis process and and those leaves still growing on the the branch, even though you've cut it off from the tree, you remove a, you know, something from that tree. It's it, it's it's still alive, but as you know, it's going to die, right? Unless something drastic happens to it, like grafting or something like that. But. We know it's going to die, and that's that's what happens to Adam and Eve here. Now it takes a long time. God says it will happen to you, not at this moment. But they began this long march towards death. Therefore humanity has died or denied the right to eat from the tree of life, which apparently the tree of life, if they kept eating this thing would somehow renew their body, the cells in their body somehow, so they could live a long life. And so God kicks them out of the garden. But anyway a man is dust, and to dust he will return. God said. So unless man repents of his sin, and he puts his faith in Christ, what's going to happen? Well then mankind will suffer the worst kind of death. The worst kind of separation is separation from God forever in hell. And that's what the book of Revelation calls the second death, or the eternal death. And so it's where unbelievers, they spend eternity unless they put their faith in the second Adam. Yes, the first Adam failed, but the second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. So the good news is, this looks forward to the second Adam. (laughs) And you say, well, what's the main point of this text? Here's the way I've worded it. The main point of the text is that God has prepared human beings, both male and female, with the spiritual capacity to serve Him and to keep His commands so that they might live and enjoy the bounty of His creation. Good news. May God enable us to live for Him, to serve Him, to keep His commands and enjoy the bounty of His creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for showing us our very nature and giving us responsibility. We understand that we are made in your image. We understand you made us male and female, and you did amazing things here. We've seen that you, Yahweh Elohim, formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. May we understand our very nature and then how that affects so many things in our lives. May we understand our, our humble, lowly origins and where we will end up, where our physical bodies will end up. But may we also understand that you will also give us incorruptible bodies. As believers, we will be made new. May we long and look for that day when the curse of sin will be removed and there will be more and no more death. We're thankful for the responsibility that You've given to us because You're a working, creating God. We too have work. We can keep all that You've put into our care. May we see ourselves as Your stewards. And all of Your creation is just Your stuff that we get to look after. May we not forget the greatest of all things You have made as people. We also need to... Do to guard, to care, to nurture all of these people who have been made in Your image. So may we love them as we love ourselves. Look after our families, our our fellow church members, our workmates and friends and so forth, even our own siblings and others. May we love them as we love ourselves and care for them as they need to be cared for. Under, may we understand these responsibilities you've given to Him. Take them seriously. And understand as well that you have made us to obey. It reminds us of who we are. That we are not our own. You, you, you even bought us with a price. So we are to glorify you in our bodies. Enable us to do these very serious responsibilities. In Jesus' name we pray.